Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Amy, and I'm doing the second Bible reading for today. Um, the passage is taken from Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 27 to 36. Um, you can follow on the screen behind me or um, in your Bibles in the pews. Um, so verse, uh, verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Amy. Uh, you could keep your Bible open. Uh, we'll be working through. Uh, if you're a note taker, you'll also notice there's an outline in your, uh, in your handout, so that might be uh, helpful for you as well. But as we begin our time, I'm going to pray, so please uh, pray with me. Gracious God, we do thank you for revealing yourself to us in your Son and in your Word. Please quieten our hearts and our minds as we come before your Word now. May we respond rightly through the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some things in life are simple, yet hard. Perhaps one of the most classic cases of this was the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Have you heard of that? It was a study done in the 1970s where they got a group of kids and they said to these kids, they put them in each in their own individual room and they said to them, here's one marshmallow. You can eat the marshmallow if you want, but we're going to go out. If you don't eat the marshmallow and you wait till we come back, we'll give you two marshmallows instead of one. And that, that was it. That was the experiment. Then they went out and they waited for these kids and then they came back in. I think if that was me as a kid, I think I would have eaten it before they'd even given the, um, given the instructions. But it's such a simple thing. Don't eat the marshmallow and you'll get two marshmallows instead. So simple, yet so hard. Uh, these kids tried all sorts of tactics to hold off from eating the marshmallow. Uh, some would talk to themselves, others would sing to themselves, others would try and play games with their hands and feet to try and distract themselves, anything they could to keep themselves from eating that marshmallow sitting in front of them. Such simple instructions, yet so hard to follow. And isn't that the way of life? Some things in life are simple, yet hard to do. Like dieting, so simple, don't eat anything unhealthy, yet so hard to do. 
or like obeying the speed limit. It's very simple, go under the speed limit. Yet so hard to do. Some things in life are simple, yet hard. And in a sense, what we get with our passage today, Luke 6, is like that. It is not a complicated passage at all. It's very simple. And I suspect that actually many of us are quite familiar with the passage when we heard it read out by Amy before. We already know essentially what it says. It's a simple passage that boils down to this. Love those who don't love you. The passage is so simple to understand. Yet, of course, so, sim- so difficult to do. Because I'm sure even as we, were hit, we heard that read out before, some of us might have started making excuses in our head. We might have started thinking, yeah... But, what about my neighbour who plays music at full blast at 2am in the morning? What about that person at work who's just so, so lazy? Such a simple message, yet so hard to do. And so we'll work through the passage today, and as we do, we'll see that Jesus gives the command itself, he gives some examples of what that looks like, and then he gives us the motivation for why we're to live like that. And so our passage, it's been a few weeks since we were in Luke, so just a quick refresh about what's come before. It was the Beatitudes, where Jesus essentially aims to get us to see as God sees, to see the world in the way that God sees it. And now, as Jesus continues, he's wanting us to act as God acts, to act in the way that God acts. And so that's why he gives us the commands, love your enemies. Now, in verses 27 to 28, he technically gives four different commands, but they're essentially just nuanced ways of saying the same thing. Love those who don't love you. Have a look at verses 27 and 28. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Four commands, love, do good, bless and pray. And what I love about them is how they kind of interact with each other. The way that we love people is by doing good to them. Uh, We bless them by praying for them. When we pray for them, we are loving them. When we bless them, we are doing good for them. I love that interaction between them. And essentially, this is how we're to live, Jesus says. We're to be people filled with love, even for our enemies. We're to be people who do good, even to those who hate us. We're to be people who bless and speak well of those who curse us and speak poorly of us. And we're to pray to come before God for those who mistreat us. It's such a high bar. I don't know if you feel that when you're reading through it. That's certainly what I felt. It's such a high bar that Jesus sets. He doesn't say, love those who are a bit annoying, be kind to those who you find frustrating. No, it's those who, those, who are, those who are your enemies, those who hate you, those who curse you, those who mistreat you. That's who we're to love. Now, it's true that we might not have the kinds of enemies that we might typically think of as being enemies and in the way that some Christians around the world do have uh, in China and in North Korea. You can be put in jail simply for being a Christian. No legal process, no uh, opportunity to defend yourself, just simply put in jail. That's how much the governments there hate Christians. In Africa, there are places where terrorists go and attack and burn down the farms and houses of Christians who kill their wives and children and husbands. And so when we think about those kinds of Christians, we do realize their enemies are so clear, so obvious. 
But in God's kindness, that's not the situation we find ourselves in. But nevertheless, I think we still have enemies, those who don't love us, those who don't desire good for us. And I'm sure you can think of people like that, whether that's people who have accidentally insulted us or outright outright assaulted us. People who have forgotten our birthdays or failed us in some grievous way. People who have excluded us from a party or included us in their gossip. See, it's easy to minimise it, but actually emotional, relational pain is actually so difficult, so hurtful. And too often when we're hurt, then we hurt back. We say, we fight fire with fire. If you strike me, then I'll strike you back where it hurts. But what Jesus tells us is so countercultural to that. He tells us we're to love those who don't like us. We're to do good to those who ignore us. We're to bless those who hurt us. And we're to even pray for those who hate us. Such a simple message, but so hard to do. And Jesus then kind of sums it all up in the so-called golden rule. One of the most famous verses in the Bible. Have a look at verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, this is a uniquely Christian idea. It is true that many other world religions have something similar. So, say, for example, this is what Confucius says. He says, what you do not wish for yourself, do not do to others. But the difference with that is that's, in a sense, a defensive, a negative version of it. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. So I wouldn't want someone to bash me over the head with a tire iron and steal my car, so I don't do that to others. But you see the difference with that compared to what Jesus says. He says, do to others as you would have them do to you. It's the positive version. In a sense, it's the active version. Actively go and seek good. Actively go and do good to others. Whatever you would want someone to do to you, do that to them. So I'd want people to be patient with me, even when I'm not deserving of that. So I'm patient to others, even when they don't deserve it. I'd want people to forgive me when I do wrong. And so I forgive others when they do wrong. I'd want people to love me when I'm being hard to love. So I love others when they're being hard to love. And this is the command Jesus gives us. It's not a complicated command. It's not a complex command. It's a very simple command, yet so difficult to do. And so that's the command. Then Jesus doesn't leave us trying to figure out what this might look like in practical life. He gives us some examples. And it starts in verse 29. Have a look. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, it's pretty easy to understand why someone slapping you might be difficult to love. I don't know about you, but uh, my response to someone slapping me would not be to slap back, but to punch back and to break their jaw. And yet, Jesus says, no, don't fight back. And in fact, not just don't fight back, offer up the other side for them as well. He then continues, if someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Now, perhaps we've lost a little bit of the weight of this because we're not quite familiar with how essential cloaks were. But in the Old Testament, a person's cloak was their one inalienable right. If uh, If someone had lent you their cloak, it was a command in Exodus to return their cloak to them before sunset because many people's cloak doubled as an item of clothing and a blanket. So they needed it to sleep. And yet what Jesus says... 
is if someone takes your cloak, not only do you not demand it back, but you offer up your tunic, your T-shirt as well. That's what it looks like to love those who don't love you. And then finally, verse 30. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Now, it sounds so extreme, don't you think? Give to everyone. Don't demand back of them. And if you're anything like me, your mind automatically starts thinking, well, what about the exceptions? Surely there's limits to this. What does that mean when we walk down the street in Melbourne, we have to give to every single homeless person there, anyone who asks? But I think the problem with thinking like that is it's minimizing the punch, the weight of what Jesus is saying. Of course, there's a place for wisdom. As Christians, we're not gullible or naive. There is a place for common sense. But what Jesus is calling us to is countercultural generosity, extreme generosity, even when it hurts to be generous and to love those who don't love us. And this is uh, quite helpful, the examples that Jesus gives us. And we know there's a million more examples we could think of, but you see how countercultural this is. When I think of interpersonal relationships, I often think of my grandma. Now, I got on well with her, but the thing about my grandma was that she could hold a grudge. She could tell you every single person that had wronged her in the last 80 years, and she could tell you where they were when they did it, she could tell you what they said, she could tell you everything about that situation. And in fact, what she'd often do with people who had slighted her was she'd cut them out of her life. She'd say, after all, well, they obviously don't love me, so why should I love them? And in many ways, isn't that how our society works? That's why we see cancel culture all around us. If someone does something wrong, if someone says something wrong, then what does the world say? Destroy that person. Wipe them from the face of the earth. Go after their job and after their family and after their reputation. Yet you see how different this is to that. We're being called to such a radically countercultural way of living, rather than cancel those who don't love us, rather than ignore those who don't love us, Rather than hold grudges against those who don't love us, we're to love those who don't love us. But the question is, well, why should we live like this? And that's where Jesus turns now. He's given us the command. He's given us some examples of what it might look like. And now he gives us the motivation. And he starts by saying, if you only love those who love you, then you're no different to anyone else. That's what everyone does. Have a look at verses 32 and 32 to 34. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. And we know that's how things work. Uh, when I was a teacher, I was a school teacher in, uh, at a school in Broadmeadows. I'm convinced it was the uh, toughest, worst school in the state. Uh, the kids were really difficult to teach, really difficult to love, deliberately uh, disruptive, deliberately trying to stop each other from learning. And there were even some students at the school who had uh, gangland connections with their parents. And yet, even those students loved their friends, even those students were kind to their friends, even if not to others. And if you went down to Barwon Prison and saw the inmates there, even the inmates in jail do good to other inmates 
with the expectation that they will do good back to them. I mean, that's the way of the world. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. There's no credit in loving those who love you. That's just what everyone does. But what are we to be like? Well, we're to love those who don't love us. Why? Because that's what our Heavenly Father is like. Have a look at verse 35. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. See, we're to love those, we're to love like this, because that shows that we're children of God, children of the Most High. Now, that word there for will be uh, isn't will be in the sense of will become but rather in the sense of will show yourselves to be. And we know that it has to be that because in the very next verse, he calls God their father already in the present, that that is the case right now. And so rather than this being what makes someone a child of God, I think rather this is the point that this demonstrates that they are a child of God already. How? Well, because kids are like their parents, one of the jokes my mum always says is, uh, you're a blithe and of course you love chocolate because I love chocolate, uh, my dad loves chocolate, my dad's dad loves chocolate, I'm sure his dad loves chocolate. It just runs in the bloodline. We love chocolate. Uh, something my dad likes to say is to tell Cassie, if you want to see what Ollie will look like in his 60s and 70s, then look at me. If you want to see what he'll look like in his 90s, then look at Pa. Why? Because like father, like son, like grandfather, like grandson. And in the same way, by loving those who don't love us, we're taking after our heavenly father. We're showing that we're already part of his family. We're cut from the same cloth. Because that is exactly what God does. Did you see that in verse 36? Have a look. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. See, ultimately, at its heart, that is why we love those who don't love us. That's why we're to be merciful and gracious to them, because that's exactly what God has done to us. See, apart from the Spirit, we don't love God. Uh, rather, by our natural disposition, we are God's enemies. Uh, Paul says exactly that in our first Bible reading from today. Uh, keep your finger here and flip back to it again. We heard Nathan read it out before, but Romans chapter 5. And this is what verses uh, 6 to 10, or at least some of them says. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, continues on, but God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then continues verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? See, that is what we were. We were God's enemies. We hated him and we fought against him and we did everything in our power to rebel against him. Yet what does God do? God welcomes his enemies and he loves his enemies, and he gives his life for his enemies, so that he might adopt his enemies. And so now, as his children, then we imitate him in this incredibly radical, counter-cultural love. 
we love those who don't love us. And so that's our passage then. It's, it is a simple one, but so, so difficult to do. So simple, yet so hard. And it's worth us then reflecting on how we're going, doing some self-evaluation. I've got two questions that it's worth us thinking about. Do you return wrong with right? And do you seek good, good over evil? And so firstly, do you return wrong with right? Uh, in a sense, this is the kind of defensive question. When wrongs are done to you, how do you respond? Do you lash out? Do you try and get them back? Do you try and even up the score? Or do you return wrong with right? Do you turn the other cheek? Do you bite your tongue even though you're itching to say something? When you're driving on the road and someone cuts you off, or when you let someone in and they don't say thank you, what do you do in return? Uh, do you blast the horn? Do you yell out at them? Do you make rude gestures at them? Or do you return wrong with right? Do you let it go? Do you let them merge in? Do you maybe even say a quick prayer to them as you pray for those who mistreat you? When one of your friends organizes a catch-up and everyone else gets invited except for you, what do you do in return? Do you organize your own hangout and not invite them? Do you try and undermine their standing in the circle, friendship circle? Do you try and turn the other friends against them? Or do you return wrong with right? Do you keep including them, even if they're not going to include you? See, and there are countless examples we could think of, big and small. I'm sure you can think of a million examples as well. But it's worth reflecting on, do you return wrong with right? And in so doing, imitate your Father in heaven, like father, like son, or like daughter. An incredible example of this was the Abdallah family. I don't know if you remember them. It's quite recent. On February 1st, 2020, uh, some of their kids went for a walk down the street to get ice cream. At about the same time, a man called Samuel William Davidson got behind the wheel of his four-wheel drive. His blood alcohol level at the time was three times the legal limit. He also had MDMA and cocaine in his system. And sadly, while he was drunk and high, he lost control of his car and ploughed into the group of kids. Four of the kids were killed. Three of them were the Abdallah's children. There was Anthony, 13, Angelina, 12, and Sienna, 8, along with their cousin Veronica, 11. And imagine the pain of the Abdallah family. Imagine losing three children and one niece in one instant. Of all the things that someone could do to wrong you, than driving while drunk, and on drugs, then crashing and killing their kids. I mean, that is about the worst thing you could think of to do to someone. For the Abdallah family, Samuel William Davidson is their enemy. He's done the worst thing to them that anyone will ever do. And yet, do you know what the Abdallah family was able to do? They forgave him. They forgave the man who had taken so much from them. They returned wrong with right. And it's hard to imagine something that would be more difficult to do than that. It's hard to imagine a greater act of love than that, to forgive the person who's responsible for the death of three of your children. And yet they did. How were they able to do that? Well, because they're Christians. And so they knew what their heavenly father is like. They knew that he had first forgiven them 
And so now they forgave this man. They showed love towards their enemy. They returned wrong with right. And then the second question that's worth thinking about, do you see good over evil? While the first question is perhaps a defensive question, what do we do when wrong is done to us? This one is about do we actively go out of our way to do good to others, even those who don't love us? Do you pray for them? Do you bless them by praying for them? Do you love them by doing good to them? Do you go out of your way to seek good for your enemies? What about those politicians we know despise us? We know they hate God and they hate everything we stand for. What do we do about them? Do we always speak badly about them? Do we always complain about them? Do we tell others not to vote for them? Or do we seek good over evil? Do we pray for them? Do we pray? Do we open our hearts and pray and plead with God that His favour might fall upon them? That God would change their hearts and be at work in their lives? Is that what we do? Or what about that person at church, the person that you just really struggle to like, the person that just grinds your gears, that gets on your nerves? Do we ignore them? Do we make a point of avoiding them on Sundays? Do we act like they don't even exist? Or do we seek good over evil? Do we seek them out and try and talk to them? Do we make sure they're included in every conversation? Do we look to make sure that they're always not left on the outer? See, Jesus here is calling us to more than just politely ignoring those we don't get on with or trying to avoid those who hate us. Jesus is calling us to actively do good to them. It's not easy. In fact, it's so, so difficult. But this is what God calls us to do. Now, in 2006, a gunman went into the uh, West Nickel Mine School, which was a small Amish school, and he shot dead five kids and injured another six, before then turning the gun on himself. Imagine being that Amish community. Imagine someone doing that, how difficult that is to love them. But do you know how they responded to that extreme injustice? Because of their belief in God and because they knew of his mercy, then these families forgave the man who did that. But even more than that, are these, this Amish community were actually the people who attend, the, the biggest group of people who attended this man's funeral. The man who had shot dead so many from their community, they were the ones who went and attended his funeral. Then they even went and raised money for the gunman's widow. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? To raise money for the widow of the man who had killed so many of your children. Why were they able to do that? Well, because they were actively seeking good over evil. They knew that this is what God has done to us. And so that is what we do to others. It is incredible, astounding love that anyone could do that. So amazing. And so this is what God calls us to do. It's a simple message, but so difficult. And we know that we will fail. Uh, we know that this is not how we'll live. In fact, we know that it's only by God's, God's love and God's kindness that we can do it. When we do live like this, then it's only by the power of the Spirit. And even that is God's mercy that He gives us His Spirit to be able to live like this. But we know that even with that, we will fail. The bar's too high. It's, it's impossible, isn't it? And so what a blessing it is then to know of gospel grace. 
to know that Jesus is the only one who did this perfectly. He's the only one ever who's done this perfectly, who has ever, the only one who's perfectly loved those who hated him, who has consistently done good to those who mistreated him, who ongoingly blessed those who cursed him, who unswervingly prayed for those who mistreated him. This is what Jesus did. And he did it all for their sake and for our sake. See, Jesus died on the cross for his enemies, for us. Jesus loves his enemies, us, and he makes it possible for his enemies, us, to become his friends because of his death. And so when we fail at loving others in this incredible way, which we will, we find such comfort in knowing that Jesus did not fail. And because of that, all of our sins and failings, all of our imperfections, all of the times we've failed to love others are washed clean. So praise God for gospel grace. I'm going to pray and thank God for that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus that he perfectly loved his enemies, he loved us in a way that we don't. Uh, We thank you that because of him we have the assurance of forgiveness, the assurance that we are adopted into your family and we are children of God. And so we pray that as part of your family you would help us by your spirit to live lives pleasing of you, that are worthy of that name of being called your children, lives where we love those who hate us, lives where we bless those who curse us, Lives where we pray for those who mistreat us. We, we do confess we find this so difficult, so hard to do. Would you help us? Uh, would you enable us to live in this way? But would you remind us when we fail of the hope of the gospel? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.